Describing the church, here's Pastor Ed Taylor. The church is not a building. The church is you. You're the church. When the Bible refers to church, the Bible refers to born-again men and women that are a part of the family of God, where we are together. We are knit together by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is amazing grace. The church is often described as a building or an organization, and sometimes in some unflattering ways, to put it politely. But what does God say about the church? We'll set out to answer that today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Tanner. God tells us what He thinks about the church in places like Hebrews chapter 10 and a few other places as well. Here now with today's teaching is Pastor Ed. As we're studying through the book of Hebrews, we're learning the joyful truths and the benefits of a real relationship with Jesus. The true benefits of being born again. That Jesus is, capital I-S, the promised Savior. That he is the Messiah. That he is the fulfillment of all the old covenant and all the promises of God. That he is our sufficiency. And that we need no longer look anywhere to anything for all that we're looking for in life. You know, it's been said that we all have this God-shaped void in our hearts. And people make a lot of different choices to try to fill their lives with alcohol and drugs and relationship and entertainment and career and money and on and on the list goes. But your sufficiency is only found by faith in Jesus Christ. And until you come to terms with that, until you rest in Him, you'll be frustrated You'll be overwhelmed, you'll be discouraged, you'll be beat up, and you'll find yourself suffering from the consequences of sinful behavior. Because it's Jesus that saves, it's Jesus that rescues, and it's Jesus that changes us. And as we've learned before now in Hebrews chapter 10, by faith in Jesus Christ, the invitation to enter into the very presence of God is available to any of us. No longer is it limited to one man, one time a year, taking the blood of an animal to sprinkle on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. But because of the death of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven, our guilt and shame is removed, and one dramatic event happened when Jesus died on the cross, and that was the veil of separation in the temple from the Holy of Holies to the holiest place. That veil was ripped in two from top to bottom signifying that the opening wasn't made by man. The opening was given to us by God. And how do we enter in? Well, we enter in as a, as a man, as a woman, as a boy or a girl that's born again. Look what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2. I love this. Paul is writing to the church family in, in Ephesus, and he says in verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, this is describing us, 
We were by nature children of wrath, just as others are. This is a dark description of a person separated from God. The behaviors, the thought patterns, the very nature of the person separated from God is that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. There is no spiritual life in a person that's not born again. And they're following along. They're walking the way the world walks, it says. They're living according to the prince of the power of the air. They're cooperating with the devil themselves. And I mean, a person doesn't really realize how bad things are because it's easy to cover them up with good attitudes and good intentions and maybe even some good behavior. But being separated from God is no, is no small thing. It's very serious. But notice the change in verse 4. For a person like this, Paul says, but God. You might want to mark that. Circle those two words, but God. And you could say this right next to it. This is the gospel. The gospel, the good news. God brings good news. And notice, God is rich in mercy, verse 4, and because of his great love, so he's rich in mercy, great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We get the phrase born again. That phrase is not made up by man. We get the phrase born again in the English from the lips of Jesus himself in John chapter 3. Unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven, not see the kingdom of God. The phrase born again is described here as a person being made alive. That even though they were dead spiritually in their sinful behavior, God made us alive. And he were alive with Christ. Verse 6, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That... In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You may not see it right away, but the description of being born again is all God and none of you. It's all God. Salvation comes from God himself. Salvation is a miracle of God. Each time it happens, it is a miraculous miracle, or you could say a miraculous intervention of God in someone's life. Man never saves anyone. Man can't save himself. A church can't save. A pastor can't save. A priest can't save. A church system, a list of rules. There is no other way than a person to be forgiven of their sins than by the miraculous intervention of God. Here's the problem. The problem is this. We experience so many people's lives being changed that we tend to forget the miraculous in salvation. It's like, oh yeah, there was some response to the gospel. Yeah, my mom got saved. Yeah, my brother got saved. And while there's an initial excitement, we forget that Wait a minute, wait a minute. When someone gets saved, God performed a miracle on their hearts. You can't go to a doctor and have a heart change that will bring salvation into your life. You can't do enough good deeds in order to remove the sin and the guilt of sin and shame and, and, and all the weight of all the consequences of you. You are unable to, it is a miracle of God. And he's the one that gives life. And he's the one, notice it says that he lifts you up. 
We happen to live in a culture that teaches us to work hard, work hard, work hard, and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Have you heard that phrase before? It's the idea of a self-made man and a self-made woman. There might be self-made men and women in the world within the context of earth where they work really hard and they start a business and they do really well, that there's an effort and energy. They're working hard and they made something. But for the believer, there's no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. Everything that you and I have, and really for the unbeliever too, but we get the language in the world in which we live. Like I know some of you are listening to me go, but Ed, I'm a self-made man. But you're really not. You're really not. It's not to, to minimize your hard work. We should be hard work. God values hard work. And it's not that you didn't start something and you sacrificed much for the business and for the home that you have. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not denying that at all. But where did you get the brain to think the way you think? How do you make your hands work? Where did the blood come from in your body? How is it that you were able, you go, Ed, but, but Ed, I have, a, I have a degree. I'm a doctor. I've got two doctorates. What do you have, Ed? I don't have anything. Well, actually, I do. I have an associate's degree that I finished on my couch. So I'm college educated. But it's not about college, is it? I got my associate's degree in biblical theology after pastoring in this church for about 16 years. So the first 16 years, you're like, Ed, you taught us without an education? Yes, yes, I did. Because it's not about education. I don't come every weekend and parade my, my degree. Look how smart I am, everybody. Listen to me. No, but if I'm not speaking the words of God, don't listen to me. I don't care how many degrees I have on my wall. But let's just say I have degrees. If I do, they are gifts from God to me. They don't make me any better or any worse than anyone. That was just the course that God gave me in life. But where would I get the thinking to study and do my homework and turn it in and have the strength to wake up in the morning? It all comes from God. He's the one that lifts you up. Let me just take this in now into something more personal, and that is religion. When it comes to religion, there's a difference between religion and relationship. Religion teaches that you're to work really hard to make it. And elaborate systems are set up so that you have something to do all the time so you can feel like you're right with God. Relationship is the exact opposite. Relationship says, by faith in Jesus Christ, you are all right with God. He loves you. He cares for you. And he lifts you up. And don't miss this because this is real insightful. Don't miss this. It says that in verse 6, he raised us up together and made us sit together. Now there's two things I want you to see there. Number one, sitting is a place of rest. Sitting is a place of rest. There is not hyperactivity in the room right now because you're sitting and you're resting And sometimes the chairs are so comfortable that your resting turns into sleeping. You're resting right now. God has not only raised you up, but he's helped you to sit down and rest your life in him. But also I want you to see that you're to sit, and don't mark this in verse 6, he made us sit together. And that's what I want to emphasize today. He has made us sit together. And when a person is born again, they become a part of the family of God. Immediately adopted into the family of God. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 10 now, as I have the privilege of teaching you about the importance of the church. The beautiful thing about the church of Jesus Christ. It comes from the work that Jesus has done on the cross. 
I was reading recently an illustration. It's a fictional illustration of a man that was walking along a path and fell into some serious quicksand and he began to sink to his inevitable death unless somebody came by and helped them. And so some came by with some religious opportunities, some religious offers to him. For example, Confucius came by as this guy's sinking in quicksand and Confucius said, it is evident that man should stay out of places such as this and he kept on walking. That was a big help. Thank you Confucius for saving me with your philosophy. Buddha came by and Buddha said, let a man's plight be a lesson for the rest of the world. And he kept walking by. Even Muhammad came by this guy sinking and said, alas, it is the will of God. You deserve to be in the quicksand. But you know, Jesus came by and he said to that same man, take my hand and I'll save you. God does the work of salvation. And if you will simply take his hand today, he will save your soul. And when you are saved, you become a part of the church of Jesus Christ. You actually become the church. Despite what we think, because we've used this language so much, like for example, I'm sure some of you, when you were getting up today, maybe people were running late in the house or it was kind of, you got up later, you said, hurry up everybody, we're gonna go to church. We're gonna go to church. Or the kids are there, hey, hurry up, get ready, we're heading off to church. And what you really meant was, Let's get in the car. Let's drive down to that building on the corner of Hampton to Biscay because we're going to worship God in that building. Put your kiddos in Sunday school. We're going to junior high's head upstairs and then we're going to go to that building. But, but we use the phrase church because over the years a building has come to be associated with church. Now understand, I'm not opposed to the language. I even find myself using the language myself. I'm, hey, where are you going, Ed? I got to head down to the church, and or sometimes I say office or building, but I'm heading down to the church. I got to take care of something. But I get that language, but that language is biblically inaccurate. The biblical mindset of the church is simply this: the church is not a building. The church is you. You're the church. When the Bible refers to church, the Bible refers to born-again men and women that are a part of the family of God, where we sit together, where we are together. We are knit together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And one of the gifts that God gives to us to defeat discouragement, to defeat depression, to find strength in weakness is this gathering known as the church. Notice in verse 22 of chapter 10 of Hebrews now. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. Right away in this section, you'll notice that the phrase, let us, let us, let us, is used three times. It is a collective phrase referring to us as believers. Because of all that God has done in our lives, because of what Jesus has done to open the way that we can come in, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and finally, let us consider one another. And I have to say, one thing is very certain, and that is Jesus is very interested in the affairs of his church. Because make no mistake about it, the church of Jesus Christ belongs to Jesus. 
A man doesn't own it. A religious system doesn't own the church. The church does not belong to man. the, The church wasn't invented by man. The church, the gathering, the family, the body of Christ was invented by God. It was God's idea. And church is a gift to us. This gathering is a gift of God to us that we are able then to enjoy an intimacy of friendship and relationship for some, for some relationships in the church are actually closer and even deeper than some blood relationships that they have. That not only are we able to share relationship with one another, but one of the privileges I've enjoyed over the years as God has allowed me to leave the country and visit other churches is it doesn't matter where I go, when I'm with the believers, we're right in the presence of God. Even if I don't know the language, I was thinking today, a memory came back of the time that we were able to spend in Cairo, Egypt with the believers there. And as they would sing, on one side the men would sit, on the other side the women would sit because that's their cultural requirement. Culturally, that's what's acceptable there. So we'd all be in that really small room packed with people, men on one side, women on the other side, and they're worshiping with loud instruments, singing to the top of their lungs in Arabic. And I don't understand a word that they're saying intellectually, but I am with them as they are rushing into the throne room of grace because they're my brothers and they're my sisters. And that transcends what country we're from, what language we speak, what color our skin is. The blood of Jesus Christ brings unity, not division, among the family of God. That is God's gift to us. God's gift to us is unity in the blood of Jesus Christ. What it does is it separates believers, though, from the world system. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We operate and eat and drink and work and, and, and hang out in the world because that's all we have to hang out in, but we're the light in the darkness. And God is calling us to a greater unity as a church, not just our church, although that's important, but to the church at large. So much time and energy is wasted arguing about things and being critical about things that really are not of eternal significance in the church. It is not God's desire for the church to be divisive, for the church to be filled with complaints, for the church, and I'm talking the church at large, It is not God's desire for us to give a picture to the world that we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to love each other. We don't know how to forgive one another. God says, no, that's the church that's going to demonstrate to a loveless world what love actually looks like. What does it look like to forgive when you're hurt? What does it look like to forgive like you've never been hurt before? What does it look like to care for one another? What does it look like? And it starts with this command. Let us consider one another. Paul would say in another place in the book of Philippians that we're to esteem others even above ourselves. We're to learn how to serve and to sacrifice on the basis of the grace of God for the sake of the kingdom of God so that the world would understand that we're his followers. Jesus said this, that the world would understand and get it that we're his followers. Why? Because of our love for one another. And if we don't know how to love one another, then what's the message we're giving when we leave? When we leave. Because we're the church gathered right now. We're the church gathered. But in a few moments, we're going to be the church scattered wherever you go. And as we're gathering together, look, I want you to see this. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 6 because I just think this is a word from the Lord. That it is not God's will. It's not God's will for you to be divisive. 
No, as a matter of fact, one of the culture statements we have in our church, we introduced earlier this year, one of the value statements we have, one of the thing, mutual commitments we have is the phrase, the heading is, we lock shields. And the idea behind that is that we stand together and we fight the common enemy, we don't fight one another. We recognize that there's a real enemy out there, and the real enemy is coming to steal, kill, and destroy. So our choice as a church and as a family is we lock shields together, and we move forward toward the real enemy instead of fighting one another and hurting one another. And in Proverbs chapter 6, notice with me, pick up with me in verse 16. I don't know, you might be very familiar with this, especially if you read the Proverbs, you know, a proverb a day in your devos. You might be very familiar with this because this is so, so powerful. And this is the proverb, if you do read Proverbs a day, today's the, this is the one for today. And it's a great way to do your devos. It says, these six things the Lord hates, and seven are an abomination to him. So we want to know, what does God hate? And you may have never noticed this before, but I want you to see it. Verse 17 says, he hates a proud look, and a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that are swift to running and evil. Pause there just for a second. Look, tongue, hands, heart, feet. That's a partial description of a body, a dysfunctioning body, body parts that aren't fulfilling what God's called them to do. This is Abounding Grace, and you're listening to a message in Hebrews from pastor and Bible teacher Ed Taylor. Catch a replay when you visit AboundingGraceRadio.com. Now, if you haven't already, download the free app. Simply search for Calvary Church or Ed Taylor in the App Store or Google Play. Pastor Ed, we're called to unity, yet there's many expressions of that unity. So how should we respond when the church is criticized for its differences? Well, I'll tell you what, Larry, if there's something that's popular today, it's criticism, and it's opinionated criticisms at that. And let's just admit that the church isn't perfect, so not all the criticisms are inaccurate. I think that we really need to be careful that we don't just dismiss things, because especially those things that you might be very defensive about, I, I think in many ways the church has lost its credibility, and I mean the church at large has lost its credibility because of our infighting, because of our factions, because of our tribalism, because of our inability to, to master or our inability to enjoy, our inability to just obey the Word of God when it says that we're to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So not all criticisms are wrong. We should take them to the Lord, pray through them, and allow the Holy Spirit to bring to light what we need to know. However, you know, the, the petty criticisms, the, the things that, that really are not true, they're just designed to hurt, you know, they're, you remember that saying, Larry, uh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt us. Well, that's not true. Sticks and stones will break our bones and words do hurt us. And so take those pains and those concerns to the Lord. If the criticisms are accurate, let's repent. Let's repent and let's make things right so we could be a witness to our community. Um, but man, Lord, I, I pray constantly for unity just in our little church, but also in the churches in our community, uh, that we are unified on essentials, but we aren't necessarily unified on non-essential things, and that's okay. But we've got to be unified on what's essential, the deity of Christ, the nature of salvation, uh, the authority of God's Word. I mean, there are essentials, so press on by faith 
and allow the Holy Spirit to grow us in Christlikeness. Thanks again, Pastor Ed. Looking for some good summertime reading for that vacation of yours? Allow me to suggest The Jesus Style by Gail Irwin. It's a good one. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus taught that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, become the servant of all. Now, he also modeled this through how he lived, and that's the emphasis of the Jesus style. You'll learn how to follow in the Lord's footsteps and become the servant of all. We'll send you a copy with our thanks for a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. And please remember, it's through your financial support that we're able to come to you day by day on this station. Your gift, whatever the size, would be greatly appreciated and put to good use. Request your book today by calling us toll-free at 877 30-GRACE. Again, 877-30-GRACE. Not long ago, we created an e-store, which makes ordering resources like this super easy. You'll find it at calvaryco.store. Again, that's calvaryco.store. And if you just want to make a donation to the ministry today, but you're not really interested in the pick of the month, you can donate online at aboundinggraceradio.com. And don't miss our next study in Hebrews with Pastor Ed Taylor tomorrow on Abounding Grace. And may God richly bless you with His abounding grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado.